1: Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. This is the Finding Backcountry podcast, uh, episode 37, coming at you with Henry Ferguson, better known probably for all of your Instagram handles. (laughs) Um, at big chief Wackabuck, I assume that's how you pronounce it. It's not some. That's (laughs) correct. Yeah. (laughs) And also, uh, not fit to hunt, which is one of my favorite Instagram handles. Um, (laughs) but yeah, man, you're, so we've just been chatting. I just decided to hit the record button, but you're, you're one of those guys, um, that I, I feel like it's probably not mutual, um, but I feel like we're best friends um, just through Instagram because <laughs> I just I I think we would get along. I like you know I've I've met you I think in person at the Expo a couple of times, but
0: yep, and met you at uh, Total Archery Challenge too. Oh yeah, yeah, just right. real briefly. I met ran into you and Corey out there one day. So yeah, yeah. out losing arrows. Oh hey, you know that's uh, our our equipment leads to different experiences there <laughs> so <laughs>
1: are you uh, are you going back there
0: this year I'm trying to but it's uh we've just got a lot going on and you know we've uh, it's just been kind of a weird summer been an expensive year for us so far so we're gonna let uh, we're gonna let the bank account decide <laughs> whether that trip gets made or not so well yeah it's it, it's always a tough shoot for me to go to I mean I I absolutely love it because, I mean, I I love shooting arrows and watching them arch into targets, and that is like made for it. But shooting uh, off
1: ninety degree cliffs,
0: yeah, that's also fun, yeah. <laughs> and but my my biggest challenge, that's right in the middle of prime time for scouting for me, man. And I just, it is so hard to, it's it's hard to leave your hunting unit when uh when you know the antlers are pretty well developed by then and you're you're kind of missing out on you're missing out on important stuff that's how i always look at it
1: um, yeah well i heard um that i actually haven't got on to check but i think they're sold out um so i don't know i if think that... they
0: are but i you i, I got, got an invite your... to shoot with a group yeah. so that i think i'm i'm my spot's safe but like I said, right now, we've got a couple things that are kind of competing for it. And that's, uh, you know, scouting is always a tough one, man. That's, it's always tough for me to leave when it, when it matters the most, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned so, um, scouting season. Well, we've already mentioned scouting season and archery, which is ironic because that's the two, that's what I want to talk about <laughs> um, today, but um first give the cliche uh just give like the the two minute spiel so people kind of know where you're coming from and and why you're passionate about this stuff
0: Uh, well first of all just about any conversation with me involves either scouting (laughs) mule deer or archery and uh i i know when i i know when my wife's heard enough of it because she's got expressive eyes and they roll back in her head and I see that I've gone too far. But, um, fortunately she never listens to podcasts, so I can just talk about it all I want. This is like a great outlet. That's me. why God invented but, podcasts
1: so that we could have a place to
0: vent. Yeah. I think it absolutely is. Yeah. So, uh, no, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I was raised in a, uh, I was raised in a divorced home. So, you know, and I was pretty much grew up with my mom yeah, so hunting wasn't a huge part of my life growing up, but I always loved being in the outdoors. I loved fishing. I loved, you know, anytime I could get out and go hunting, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, you know, was lucky enough to kill a couple animals in high school, got a tur, got a couple turkeys and a, a, a deer, which was the hardest fought deer hunt I've ever been on, um, when you hunt 11 out of 13 days of the season and you see one buck and he goes home with you, that's, I mean, it was like a good precursor to what all of my deer hunts were going to look like the rest (laughs) of my life, because I'm just not a tag out on a first day kind of guy. I never have been until last year's antelope season. I, I shot a buck opening day first time I've ever done that. so
1: well, you're just wording it so wrong put po- the politically correct way to say that is, oh I just I was passing bucks because I like to enjoy the experience of the of, <laughs> of the hunt longer like yeah, right, man like we're just all well, bad
0: hunters <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what there's a lot of truth in that because when I started out hunting, that was way, way true. I mean I I, I always find new and creative ways of blowing stocks. That's one of the things that I pride myself on is, you know, really being able to vary my techniques. You know, maybe this time I get winded and the next time I get spotted and the next time I'll break a stick, but you know,
1: Maybe a combination of the three, you know,
0: for the the trifecta. that's, (laughs) That's not unheard of at all. I've, I've, uh, I, like I said, I pride myself in varying my tactics. So they don't, I, I think it's a kind of a way of, just not becoming too predictable and patternable you gotta you you gotta keep them guessing man absolutely absolutely hey is he coming from above or is he gonna pull a total rookie move and come from below yeah you know i don't know they don't know where i'm coming from every (laughs) once in
1: a while that works i think because they just like is this guy really being like no like he's not coming at us from below they just stand there looking at you like what (laughs) i've seen guys walk right up to him like 50 yards from below him because they're like no, is this for real? real? Yeah.
0: yeah. So <laughs> no, I had a buck um two years ago. It was two or three years ago now, it was two thousand fifteen that I shot. And this was a cool deer, it had big bladed eye guards, heavy bases. And I was after a real big buck that year, but he just wasn't being cooperative. He was like trying to win the hide mm-hmm. and seek championship. And you know, one of those bucks, it was visible every time I scouted him during the summer. I'd go up there and I would find this buck in one of three little spots. So I just knew where to look for him. And then archery season opened and he just vanished. So I got distracted and saw this other buck one day and got got in above him. And he was in some oak brush, some pretty pretty thick oak brush. And so I sat there at 20 yards away from this buck. And all I could see was from like his, I don't know if bucks have eyebrows, but we'll just say from his eyebrows and up. And I actually took pictures of the buck with my phone um, from 20 yards away. And you can sit there and see the, you can see the buck, the rack silhouetted in the oak brush. And you can, one of the pictures actually has my bow which is kind of resting on my, on my leg there in front of me. And this bucks rack in the background, it's pretty cool. But, uh, I sat there on that buck for like 45 minutes, clicking the, clicking pictures and stuff. And then my phone rang. My phone's always on silent, but again, you know, you got to vary your tactics and you got to keep them guessing. My phone started ringing 20 yards from this deer. I mean, I couldn't hit you know disconnect call fast enough. But uh, <laughs> it reminds it was me of craziest thing.
1: What I just pictured, <laughs> and I don't know why, is like there's these old people in our in our church that their phones, their phones will go off. Oh my gosh! Ironically, it's it's never the it's you think it would be the young kids that their phones would go off in church, but it's not because they're like they understand their it phones never... well. It's, ever, the, yeah. it's the 92-year-old woman who just got a cell phone <laughs> and doesn't know how to run it. Exactly. And she's just, like, fumbling like crazy because she's so embarrassed, but she has no idea how to push it. I just picture it, and you... And she
0: doesn't know how to turn her yeah, dinner bug phone yeah. off. <laughs> you just, you
1: just, I just saw a 92-year-old woman up on the mountain just, like, fumbling, like, no, 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 please don't. <laughs>
0: oh, that is the honest truth, man. That is the honest truth. But the funny thing is, I actually ended up killing that deer
1: (laughs) (laughs) in that like right then, or you stalked him another
0: time Um, later. No, no. I shot him about 10 minutes later. No, he was the weird thing is, (laughs) and I'm sure you probably experienced the same thing when, when deer think they're in the safest bed that they, that they can possibly get. They feel like they're pretty secure. And in my experience in Oak brush, bucks get a totally false sense of security and this buck i mean we were in oak brush he couldn't see me he heard this but i mean i muted it quick you know i mean he heard a couple beats of it but i muted it real quick and he was he was looking around i mean you could see his turn turning, looking for the source of this noise but fortunately i got it shut down pretty quick and he relaxed again and i um when he stood up by then when he stood up, Oh my gosh, Dustin, I was so amped up. I mean, it was the situation had just gotten way too big. Yeah. And you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I split the uprights on, on one there um, at 20 yards. And then he bounced out to third or to like 38 yards and I pounded him. So oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah, that's uh, that buck's going home. But it was it was just crazy it was one of those times where literally every it seemed like everything was going wrong um but if you just kind of keep your wits about you, which I obviously didn't do on the first shot, but you know once he got out to more of my comfort zone, which is a little bit longer range, things swung in my favor so yeah it went uh no, went pretty well for me from there but
1: it's so true though um multiple times I've seen where those bucks I don't think that they're they're not as concerned with the fact that you're there and that they know that you're close as they are about whether they think that you know that they're there you know what i'm saying like yes. And, yes. and he probably and I, was just like you know what i know that guy's right there but i probably he probably didn't think that you knew he was there for whatever reason and they'll exactly. just they'll just hunker down man almost the older they get the more apt they are to do that um man
0: and I, and in my experience, I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I do think that the older bucks are a little bit more likely to stay, yep. to just kind of stay hunkered down there because they feel they're safe. You know, they feel they're secure.
1: Yeah. My, uh, when I was a kid, um, had no idea about any of this, but my dad and I had a couple archery tags here in Nevada, really good. And we were we were just diving off the side of this ridge, and for whatever reason, we had split apart, maybe fifty yards or something, and really, really that really high sagebrush um, that's like up to your eyes almost. Yeah. yeah. And you know, <laughs> we were we were crashing down through there. Not you know we weren't being quiet, and all of a sudden, the set there was two bucks, big bucks, and they're bedded in that sagebrush. And we had no idea they were there, but we were just traipsing down the mountain. And we happened to just one of us on each side of them. And, you know, they, I mean, geez, they heard us coming for probably a mile off that ridge. Yeah. But they just, they just sat there because they, you know, they figured and they were right. They were right that we didn't know they were there, Um, (laughs) you know, and all of a sudden, when we got right in between them, that it just boiled over for them and they blew out of there. And we were just like, whoa, you know, like jaws on the ground while they're running <laughs> off and anyway yeah those big bucks yep. man there don't underestimate them but um so i want to get into archery stuff with you um because i know you got a pretty good background in that but first um i'm just curious um kind of about some of your scouting uh techniques because i know you know we joke but you find a lot of big bucks um, and, and you mentioned, you know, scouting for that buck in the summer and you knew where he was and then he vanished. Um, yeah. wh- what, uh, what's kind of just your general, um, you, you just drew a tag and kind of what's kind of your general okay, so approach to that of point? All- I didn't draw a tag.
0: So thank you for rubbing salt in that wound, Justin. I appreciate that. That was very kind of
1: you. Let me back up. I drew a tag. I know you did. I saw
0: your picture with you holding out your tags. You're what, like six foot? Six and that. We're all the way down to the floor. Yeah, my,
1: my, I don't know what Nevada's thinking. Uh, um, I'm grateful for, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're so ungrateful for all those tags. But then, I mean, yeah, it was only three, it was only three permits, but geez, the thing went to the was floor. It really? Yeah, it was, oh only, my that God. was only three tags, but okay, let's hypothetically, well, I drew a okay, tag. So first
0: of all, <laughs> you should not. The state of Nevada should know better than to give you or Jason three tags, <laughs> because that's as good as just signing the death warrant for three animals. No. I mean, you guys are going to oh. take the time, you're going to put in the scouting, and you're going to—that's three dead animals. We don't. They have... should let my cousin draw those from Vegas, who I... never kills anything but time.
1: I've I got... mean, that's. I've got 24 <laughs> hours on this SD card I'm looking at, and we don't have time for me to tell you all the stories of of me not killing, <laughs> not killing deer, e- even just in the state of Nevada. So, anyway, uh, hypothetically, help. So help me out. I drew a tag, and right. and you're helping me scout. So, what's what's kind of your first? Uh, where where are you going first?
0: So the first thing I want to do is go out there and put boots on the ground in the unit. I mean, I if I have let's say i've drawn a a different tag than i usually draw so it's not for my home unit not for my favorite unit i want to get out there and i want to find i want to i want to get a a, be, a feel for what the unit looks like i want to get a visual on it and in my in my experience google earth just doesn't tell me nearly enough of the story so i i want to put i i need boots on the ground and more importantly, I need glass on the hillsides. So what I'm going to be looking for during that time is glassable areas. That's my biggest. That's my my favorite strategy is to glass. Um, and part of that is the my inner uh, chubby kid and my not fit to hunt <laughs> lifestyle. But uh, but but really, what I figured out long ago was the more I glass. I mean, if I see them first, the odds are in my favor. If they see me first because I was just traipsing through the woods trying to get, you know, and hoping to get lucky, the odds are totally in their favor. So I, that's my biggest thing. Is, and I also feel that you can get by sitting a couple of mornings and evenings on these high points, you can get a pretty good feel for the inventory of what's in the area there. So,
1: so you mentioned not Google Earth because it's not really good. But I mean, are you are you realistically, though, are you pulling up some sort of map online or a physical map? And, oh, sure. And sure. you're kind of generally I like, do... oh, this looks like a point to like glass from. But then then you're like, yeah. OK, I'm not I'm not going to put too much weight on that until I actually get up
0: there. Yeah, That's that's what it boils down to. I do spend a fair amount of time on Google Earth. Um, I do feel like it is a great tool, but it's not the end all be all because yeah. man, if I, I've hiked into some points that I found on Google earth that were just can't miss yep. so, and they missed. <laughs>
1: speak, yeah. Speaking so, of Colorado and Google earth, um, you know, and my, and my brother, he's one of the, as you can imagine, you know, he's one oh of the my best gosh. at freak. uh freak. He's one of he's the best got at Google figured out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and so in Colorado <laughs> a couple years ago or whenever last year, whatever it was, um, we, you know, we just knew there was a point that we could glass from and it looked like we could, you know, the problem we could see was, man, we once we're up here, this is great, but there's no, it, it was a cliff face, you know, below us. And like, what, oh, what okay. are we going to do if okay. we actually spot something down there? And on Google Earth... <laughs> you know,
0: he's going to hike a long (laughs) way. Well,
1: well, but on, on Google earth, it was like, he gets down in the view, like you're on the mountain and we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, let's say we walked up here. Like, yeah, that looks like, that's a little steep. Like you can navigate but We could totally get off that man. We got up there. It Nope. Like it was not, we didn't, when it have climbing like, gear it, it, and it so it doesn't
0: always tell the whole story. Yep. That's why Exactly. That's why nothing nothing beats boots on the ground. That's that in my opinion that's it, it's it's not necessarily required but man for for me to go into a hunt with with confidence it's pretty much required. I I need to see the country. I need to see what I'm getting into and it helps me to plan a lot better because again, you know, you you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to find what's out there. If you give it the time that it needs for glass, you know, spent behind the glass.
1: So are you, let me ask you this too. Is there other characteristics that you're looking for or are you just saying like, man, that's a high point. I'll get in there and and glass and see what's there. Are you, are you saying that's a good point and I need it to have these characteristics around it?
0: you know, I wish I could say I was that detailed into it, but, but truly I just want, I just want some high points where I can scope the area out. Um, once you get up there, you know, you figure out pretty quickly what the bucks are feeding on and you can key in on food sources and, you know, everything needs water at some point though. Our, Our deer out here, I've run, I've run a few trail cameras for years off and on and, I've had I've seen huge elk huge elk lots of bears and a couple does I've never gotten a decent buck on any sort of water source out here so it's it's kind of strange because I I really feel like a lot of these deer especially out here are getting most of the most of the uh, water that they need just out of the plants and whatnot that they're eating but you know if you're if you're looking for elk man that's a big animal they've got to drink you've got you can go a lot you can be a lot more effective keying in on water with elk than you can with deer and in my opinion
1: can you guys um can can you bait in colorado with like salt licks no we we
0: can't do any of that no no critter lick salt licks trophy rock none of that stuff so for us, and that and that marginalizes the effectiveness of trail cameras in a big way. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I won't, for years I wondered how guys in Utah would just have, like, a seemingly random Aspen patch that was just loaded with bucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're in there all the time. Because they, the yeah, they hired a,
1: a packer to pack, you know, 50 pounds of
0: <laughs> salt up there. Which is, it's completely legal, you know exactly. And and here it's it's absolutely illegal. So yeah, we don't we don't do any of that. Um, we've just got to we've got to key in on food sources, trails, um, saddles and you know water well like i said water for me has been totally ineffective
1: and even you know for for deer case in point of why especially in like high you know and we're talking high country colorado but case in point of why it's most important to get the boots on the ground and the eyes up on the mountain Mm -hmm. and that's absolutely and, and that's a that's an important note to make i think because you know it's different if i'm going to scout i don't know um Desert Arizona, you know, f- desert country. Um, the, totally different. You know, th- the Strip yeah. or something like that. I mean, we're what we're talking oh, about here is your bread and butter of high country. um, You know, ten to twelve thousand foot peaks um, for er- typically early season,
0: right? And even in our lower country, even in our lower country out here, I think that the brows that they have to feed on out here. The plants are just a little bit more succulent for them, and there's just more. They're more moisture rich, yeah. and I think it's, I think it's almost that simple. Because I mean, I grew up in northern Arizona, and the plants down there are just as dry as the dirt itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's just there's just not mo- There's not moisture to draw from, so you know, it just makes makes those water sources a lot more important to key in on. Right.
1: Okay. But, so, but so, yeah, how, how many? Oh, maybe i'm jumping ahead here but um so typical archery early season archery hunt that's going to open around the end of august for you guys Mm -hmm. um when when is your go time to really get serious about getting up on the mountain and then i'll have a
0: follow-up question about how many days um, you're spending so that has changed here recently um for me because i've started coaching my son's lacrosse team and we don't get done until the end of may I used to start first of May. I'd I'd go up there and I'd take a couple of looks around kind of half-heartedly looking for sheds, but more importantly, I'm looking for what made it through. Um, You know, and that's what, that was the biggest reason I was looking for sheds. I mean, if I went out and found sheds, Hey, that's great. But if I, you know, if I find, I I mean, this week, this year I've had a grand total of one trip looking for sheds (laughs) one. And I mean, I'm embarrassed by it because I feel like a total hypocrite being on a podcast talking about this, but you know, my life situation has changed and I just flat don't have that much time as much time as I once did. So, but my son's team did win the lacrosse championship this year. So that, you (laughs) know, that that matters, (laughs) that matters. So it was a, it was a lot more worth it this year, but, but yeah, I'll typically I'll, I'll start looking, I'll, I'll take a couple trips in April a few more in may then i'll take numerous trips in june and by july i'm up there a couple times a week and i mean you know it's a couple hour drive for me but you know what they say if it means enough to you you'll find the time yep. and that's uh, and it does it means enough to me it's it's i won't say my world revolves around it but it's certainly in that inner circle of things that matter enough that you know you just find the time
1: how, um, how high are you getting, uh, elevation wise, you know, when you go that early in like May, cause you're, you're probably not getting up to, you know, 12,000 feet.
0: You know, and it's 12,000 feet not really an option here in May most years. In fact, um, I mean, there's one of the roads that I drive in one of the units that I hunt that that's up that high. And I mean, quite often it's not open in August still, you know, there's just too much snow. Now I haven't been up there this year, but I don't think there'll be any issue getting in there this year because we just flat haven't had that much snow um but yeah that's i mean a, a lot of my a lot of my scouting and hunting is is more in the eight to eight to ten thousand foot range i don't i don't do the high country all that often anymore i mean that's there used to be a second a second choice unit that i could hunt every other year up there but it's gotten a lot of uh, notoriety and Mm. that's no longer a a viable second choice option here anymore. So,
1: yeah. Okay. Um, So my follow-up question then is, you know, just based on averages or the past or just kind of your opinion, um, how many scouting days would you say you average per, like, if this makes sense, like per Pope and Young Buck
0: that you kill? Oh, that's Now that's an interesting way of phrasing it. I I would say, uh, gosh, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but it's probably it's probably in the forty to fifty range. I mean, I put I do a lot of homework on these bucks. You know, they're not. It's seldom an accident to to kill a a mature buck or a mature animal of any species. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, you can kind of get lucky driving around on a road and find an antelope out there. Um, you know, a big, a big buck that's bedded not too far off the road. But for the most part, you know, especially on the old deer, you're going to, you see somebody with a big buck and I'd say 70, 75% of the time, there was a a lot of backstory that went into that deer.
1: Well, the, in my opinion, the, I was just thinking as you're saying that, like when do that, those accident bucks, we'll call them, when do those happen? And it's usually, um, it's usually a rifle hunt. And, and, or it's usually a really
0: good tag, if that makes sense. You know, a guy. Okay. So see, there's a, there's a great point. I was just about to bring up the new world record, typical mule deer, which was shot not too far from where you, from where you live currently. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, I've read a couple of stories that the guy's written about it. First time he'd ever seen the buck, (laughs) but you made an excellent point. That's a heck of a unit. <laughs> I mean, he was in a—he was in a one of the most desirable spots in the country for hunting trophy mule deer. Is that so down on the know, strip, obviously. No, no, it's uh, in Nevada, just oh. north of you. So yeah, yeah okay. if I'm not—if I'm not mistaken, but yeah, it was uh, just a year before last he shot that buck, and I mean, just when you picture a high racked mule deer, that's pretty much it big, heavy, deep forks, just an awesome, awesome buck.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and not to to discredit my brother, because trust me, he, he can get it done on a general hunt and kill a 190 on an archery season, too. Um but that Yeah, which makes me a little sick, yeah. but you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, you and me
1: you and me both. But I'm just trying to ride his coattail and maybe pick up a 180 that he misses. So <laughs> um, <laughs> no kidding. No, but that that big buck that he killed, the biggest buck he's killed, that big tube, whatever it was, two twenty something. Um, you know, that was a with a muzzle loader. Which yeah. in, in Utah is as good as an old old rifle um, and b yeah, no kidding, and B that was a, it was a general unit, but it was a limited entry tag, meaning he had you know kind of special dates. Um, and so yeah. we we had we had seen that buck and knew about that buck for a grand total of three days, you know, before we actually killed it, but yeah you know would but you, you know would what? you find it, that on a general on the general archery season in that same unit i don't
0: know that buck probably figured it out possible you know he still lives there so there's still an opportunity but yeah i mean there there definitely are times where the odds kind of swing a little bit more in your favor yeah. it's still hard you know but it it makes it at least possible to to find success then um
1: You brought up another point, I think without really noticing it, um, that I want to touch on too. And that is this concept of, of out of state hunts versus hunting in kind of your backyard, so to speak. And, you know, we we might have listeners in the Midwest or the East or whatever, or even States here in the, you know, whatever, California or somewhere that doesn't have like super great mule deer hunting. But, but typically if you're in the West, um, man, your home state Probably has decent to really good mule deer hunting that you can draw easier than any of these other tags. And the the key that you were talking about that I want to bring up is you said, "Oh yeah, I'm up there every you know from July on to really pin these bucks down. I'm up there a couple times a week." Well, if I draw a Colorado tag, that's just not going to happen because it's just not an option. It's a ten oh, course, hour drive, yeah. you know. Obviously, I yeah. might I'll get one three day scouting trip. And it's it's as if well, it's your first right time in the country I and I don't think it's
0: crucial. Yeah. But I think that's crucial and I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. They they it, because I mean, hey, I live in Colorado and not to try to make the draw odds any worse because I'm living proof that they're not great. Um, I mean, of three people applying for deer in my family this year, my wife drew a rifle tag. And if I know my stinking wife, she's going to go out and shoot a great buck on opening day and, you know, sit there and flash those pearly whites and big smile behind this deer and make me look bad. But, you know, that's, that's okay. That's okay. I, I, like you said, you know, riding uh, Jason's coattails, that's pretty much me with my wife. She's, (laughs) she's got a success rate that just makes me a little ill. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think that getting yourself in the unit is important, but but I think any unit in the state of Colorado that they're issuing mule deer tags for, there is a definite possibility of a 180-inch buck. The buck lives there. You just have to find it. And it, it's, it's my opinion that the more you're able to get into that unit, the better your odds are of... Uh, putting yourself in the right place at the right time well
1: now yeah that's that's the key because you know we're i'm the worst example of what i just said i literally i'm i'm not every single state in the west applying now because i don't do well i do i do montana sheep but i don't like there my point is i'm applying for basically every state in the west that i can and so i'm I'm not a good example of what i just said because i don't just hunt my home state but what I would advise in the the game that we play is we say, okay, if I'm going to go to Colorado, um, I'm going to expect, and well, let me back up. I'm going to, I'm going to find the unit that I want to hunt. And then I'm going to, and I'm going to find one that's relatively easy to draw one to three years. Now this excludes the prime, like you know, maybe Arizona for Arizona strip tag or whatever, but generally like Colorado, I'm, I'm okay, drawn one to three years, and then we're going to be disciplined and only put in for the unit, the same unit. And so I'm going to expect to take my lumps for two, one, two, three years, maybe four years, but those are just learning experiences. And then You know, and then eventually like Nevada is actually a good example because we haven't been residents here for the last 10 years and we go hunt the same place in Nevada every year. And it it, it took us, it took us three, four trips in there. And now we've kind of feel like we've got the bucks figured out and we, we don't have to go scout it and we know where they're at. It's, it's as if we're hunting our home state like you are,
0: but so there's. Yeah. 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 But there's, uh, you know, I, I've always said familiarity kills bucks. Yeah and rather it's familiarity with the with your equipment, familiarity with the terrain, familiarity with the animal itself. That's what kills deer. Because the more the more comfortable you are and the more confident you are in knowing where they are, what those tendencies are. I mean, I had one spot that I used to hunt that's pretty heavily hunted to be totally honest. We still pulled a couple of real nice bucks out of there. And It it was, it was as much a matter of knowing where they would go once the pressure pushed them and just knowing where that next, where that secondary home for, you know, home is for those bucks. And some of that you only find by working hard and just putting a lot of time in out there and watching where animals go when they get bumped. I mean, I used to get really upset when I'd be glass in an area and I'd see somebody else out there hiking. Now I'm like, okay, what can we learn from this? Let's watch a couple hundred yards out in front of them and see if they walk into any deer. And if they do, let's see where they go and, you know, how they get there. So it shows what you learn from that is where those escape routes are and possibly even where those secondary homes are for. Yeah, that's
1: that's super valuable. How do you – so – I know that, you know, you mentioned your family and your son and stuff like that. I also know enough about you to know that you probably pretty good chance you hold a calling for your uh, church, uh, meaning like a a weekly assignment. How do you balance all of that? um, You know, knowing that most of your most of your Sundays, you're going to be back home at church. You've got a family with kids. You've got a wife are. You've got to give attention to how do you balance all that and still get good scouting trips in?
0: it it's hard i mean honestly it's hard and it's it's getting harder all the time the older my son gets you know he's 12 now so and yes you're right i do have a, a calling in the church i'm in the young men's presidency so not only are my sundays busy so are my tuesday nights mm-hmm. so you know there's but there's also a pretty solid understanding that uh, brother ferguson is going to kind of go ghost during the month of September. So any assignments that are given to him then are uh, pretty pointless because that's going to get passed off to somebody else. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to manage, but I, I, I just find, and and I paid a lot of money to an archery coach years ago who didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like at the time I got out of that, those coaching sessions, what I wanted to, but what I did get out of those coaching sessions and after looking at it through a lens from several years later is, is one quote. And that is wherever you are, be there. And the reason that quote hit me so strong is we were sitting there and, you know, I was shooting arrows and the coach looks over and my phone buzzed and I reached in my pocket and I grabbed my phone and he goes, what are you doing? So I got to check this message, and he goes, "Why?" So, well, because I'm hundred percent commission sales. <laughs> you know, if you and, and I mean, we came from a little bit different worlds in that respect. But his point was, and and that's when he said, "Wherever you are, be there." And it, I, I did, I didn't get it at the time, but in the, you know, again, looking at it through a different lens, years later that makes a lot more sense to me. So my, my, the reason I make that point is if I'm out scouting, I'm out scouting. And I, I do that. And I, I put my efforts, my thoughts and everything, all my energy into that. But when I'm at home, I've got to put my efforts and thoughts and energy into, into being at home and being with my family. And and that's something that I could do better with because, you know, we've got more distractions now than we used to with social media and, you know, it's, there's, there's just a lot of demands for your time. And as kids get older, um, you know, their appetite for your time. I know that the day is fast approaching. I mean, my son's 12 and I know the day is fast approaching where I'm going to turn into a complete idiot mm-hmm. and I'm not going to know anything and he's not going to want a thing to do with me. And I'm going to make sure that I've taken full advantage of the time leading up to that (laughs) so that we've got, you know, we've got good memories built there. And one day he'll realize that, you know, I'm not smartest guy in the world by any means, but, uh, you know, I did know a couple of things, you know, yeah, just, you have to balance, but you have to balance everything. And sometimes you feel like that guy that's spinning plates on top of the poles, you know, and that's what my life kind of feels like a lot during the summer. You just, you just kind of have to manage it
1: but. Well, and, and and you're discussing an interesting an interesting fine line, I think, because um, you know, there's there is a fine line between you got, let's say the two different dads, right? You got the one dad that um, is super, outgoing and has a passion like you do and is out on the mountain a couple times a week and shooting his bow and into hunting or whatever and helping with the lacrosse yeah. or whatever. And then on the other hand, you could have the dad who doesn't do any of that. And he just, he wakes up, he goes to his nine to five, he comes home, he's grumpy, he's onory, he kicks his feet up. He watch, he just wants to watch his show or his and TV it's show done, yeah. and is it's done. done yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing that I've found or that I see is that not just dads, just parents, and people in general? Um, the ones that that have that zest or that passion in life and are and are kind of going. Um, it's like that concept: things in motion stay in motion. And and the the irony is that that's it. They understand that their time when they are home is like you know the. Con- I'm just reiterating what you you already said, but their time is so valuable because they have those other passions and they know how busy they are that when they are home, they make the most of it. And they're not just kicking their feet up and grumpy and like, I don't, I don't have time to play or I don't have time to whatever. Yeah. They're actually spending quality time.
0: One other point that I would make is try to get your family involved in it. I mean, if they share your passion, I mean, my son, my son, it is hard as can be to get him up for school in the morning. (laughs) But if you say, Hey, Kyle, getting up at three thirty and heading out scouting in the morning that kid you walk you walk up and you open his door and he jumps out of bed and he's getting dressed and ready to go so you know there's and that's i don't know that that's something he was born with but i think if you go out there when you take him out with you you gotta make it fun that it has to be fun i mean we we catch lizards we chase lizards and i take his red rider out there and he'll shoot at birds and stuff, you know, I mean, probably not the best thing, but it's, don't get me wrong. He has an absolute blast with that. And I mean, it's, it's all he talks about when you get back, you know, and that tells you that you've done it right. So that's, I think that's one of the most important things and possibly the most important thing is having a, a spouse that gets it, that understands and that understands that, when you're out there, you're recharging your batteries, you know, and you're going to come back better than you went. Yeah. And not everybody has that. Not everybody has that person in, on the other end of their marriage, and that's really difficult. Well, and I've, and I, I, I've gonna, seen it a lot.
1: I'm going to take it one step further because I I don't want people to think that, and and I don't think you meant this, but it's not just a, a spouse that understands meaning you explain it to them and you tell them how it's going to be. And then they, they have to be okay with it. it.
0: Yeah. Well, they have to see it and experience it. Right. to to really understand it.
1: Well, and the, and the, the point that I, I think I've talked about this maybe once, but I, I bring it up with some of my friends. Like, you know, what I found is like, it's not, so let's say that you're going to hunt, you want to hunt for three weeks a year. Okay. There's 52 weeks in a year and you're going to hunt for three solid weeks, um, various weeks. It's not the 3 weeks that you're gone on the mountain that are going to make or break whether your wife is on board with you doing this or your husband or whatever you've got. Um it's the other 49. That is absolutely true. You know, and absolutely and, true. Yeah, and it goes hand in hand with what you're saying and you're making a great point of like when you're there, be there. When you're with your family, be with your family the other 49 weeks of the year or whatever and it's everything's going to work out. So
0: Yeah, and again, like I said, getting getting them involved to whatever to whatever level of interest they have, and of course, you know, hey, I'm in sales. I'm always trying to push that edge. You know, I'm always trying to push that level of interest that they have, and trying to trying to build on it. You know, you build on. I mean, one of the I I met with a a guy who's you could call him an industry tycoon, and he he said he goes, hey, look you feed opportunities and you starve problems. So, I mean, when you have that opportunity to, to really build somebody's love and joy for the outdoors, man, you better do it. (laughs) I mean, you better be, you better be heaping extra, extra helpings on, uh, on that plate, you know, when you're trying to feed those opportunities. That's awesome.
1: Any other, um, any other points with scouting? I mean, we kind of got sidetracked down the rabbit hole there, but, um, yeah,
0: <laughs> but you know the best podcasts go down the rabbit hole because you, you know, find out you you learn a, a a better depth of who a person is, you know, and what what really matters to them because it always ends up coming back to a, a common point that that really is what matters. So,
1: well, and I'd I'd rather have a twenty minute conversation about something that wasn't on my notes or the direction I didn't want to go if it's something that um is meaningful or valuable or that i care about yeah. rather than just you know sticking to some some script just because it's on the script and, and not having it be uh, authentic so who cares right
0: yeah for sure i told i completely agree with that
1: um you've so you've um, mentioned um archery a few times and i'm actually you know i i i vaguely understand your background um and you even mentioned lessons and that that in and of itself proves that you've taken it more serious than you know than the average guy uh, um yeah but i'm yeah. i'm super i'm actually selfishly interested in talking to you about a few things because i'm in the middle of you know every year um we can't just stick with the same setup like um we got to tear it down, and build, tear it down and build it back up. part of the problem is nowadays <laughs> it's like becoming commonplace to just replace your bow every year
0: um and so you and have it, to retune you know arrows. And and, i have totally fallen into that and this year i have a bow that Honestly, I don't think I'll be looking for a new hunting bow for three or four years. I am that in love with this bow that I'm shooting right now.
1: You say that and I don't. I don't believe you. You'll have I'll, a new one <laughs> what,
0: I will. Ha- oh no, I will have a new bow next year. But <laughs> I don't think it'll be my primary hunting bow. <laughs> oh, God I think it'll be a bow that I, you know, play around with tournaments and stuff with because this bow. I mean, it was one of those things that literally when I drew it back at the shop when I was just kind of testing it out, I'm like, I think I could have like a long, meaningful relationship with this bow. And then when mine arrived, oh my gosh, it's, it's been like a, a sappy love story Mm -hmm. since then. And it's kind of funny because there's this new bow honeymoon period that every single bow you get is the best bow you've ever owned for two weeks. (laughs) Because, There's something about a new bow and a new gun, new boots, new whatever, that's just like the best thing ever. Unfortunately, the honeymoon period usually ends. (laughs) And then you get into the reality that, oh, crap, this bow has target panic, just like my last bow did. (laughs) And the bow before that. And the bow before that. And because most of us fail to refuse to look in the mirror and go, Maybe the problem is me. Maybe it was me all along. Maybe I spent $2,000 on every different release made and, you know, thousands of dollars on bows without ever addressing the core problem. And that was, I was the poster child for that for a long time. I mean, um, a long, like an embarrassingly long time. I'm still, and that's why I went and saw the coach. I'm still waiting for so, someone to,
1: to invent a bow. That's, you know, a self tuning bow. I don't have to actually know how to
0: tune an arrow. <laughs> would be nice. It would be nice, but it's, it's not that hard. It's, it's just one of those things that I, I mean, I had a, I, I got into it. I have shot tournaments for a long time and I used to shoot tournaments really, really passionately. I shot a couple dozen tournaments a year but since uh you know i mean once you start having kids and stuff it's you've got to you've got to kind of pick what's really important to you and that became mule deer much more than much more than tournaments so now i'll shoot maybe four or five tournaments a year um because once it gets to may you know i start looking at Sheds on the ground, and I start looking <laughs> at new velvet growing in. And when I see new velvet, my adult onset ADD kicks in so hard that I can't focus on anything else. That's all I want to. It's all I want to see is more velvet. So, you know, whether we go for family drives around the around the foothills in the evening to see deer or whatever, you know. But but yeah, I getting back to archery though. See, everything always goes back to mule deer. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it, in archery, I, I, one of the things I love so much about archery is it's a constant pursuit of perfection, which is nearly unattainable. And I, I think, you know, you some people have, you know, maybe a more urban guy might have that same pursuit with golf. But, you know, you can get to a level of proficiency where it, it just makes you see everything starting to pay off and you see it you see all that hard work really having tangible benefits. But uh
1: what uh what would you say just right off is probably the most common mistake that uh bow hunters make relevant to archery with their setups.
0: Oh, that's easy. It's punching the trigger. <laughs> that is one hundred percent I I see that so frequently. And I mean You know, there's a lot of different types of trigger punchers. There's the guys who, you know, sit there with their finger behind the trigger because that's the safe zone. Mm -hmm. And you know that their pin is sitting there pretty good. But I can tell you exactly what happens because as soon as that trigger, as soon as that finger comes out from around the trigger and they just hammer that trigger, all you have to do is watch their bow arm to tell you where their sight was. If they, if you see them throw that bow arm up man, that thing was holding low, they froze low, but they know that their technique can get them up there. If they just throw that bow arm up, you know, or if it's left right, or, or, or high, I mean, you can, you can tell just by watching it. But,
1: so years but ago, yeah. when I, when I kind of first really got into, I, I always, you know, the, the, uh whatever you want to say the layperson in me i wanted i was looking for the uh release and i i, I always shoot a wrist strap i don't know that i'll mm-hmm. ever i i shouldn't say never but i just haven't been drinking the uh you know the hinge or the back <laughs> the back tension kool-aid and i know you're you're gonna yeah. hate hate me for that but
0: no 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 that's most people don't most yeah. people don't truthfully
1: but, and so when i but when i first got those wrist straps i would look for the most Hair trigger I could possibly find, thinking in my head yep. like, like oh that's gonna give that's me the best be shot. Clear. Yeah, kind of like a rifle or whatever. And now, yeah. am I on the right course? I will actually look for the opposite. Um, I'm looking for a a, yes. a trigger that's got a bunch of spring in it, so that I can rest my finger. If
0: nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. You want you want tension on there, so that you can get that finger wrapped around there, yes. because most uh, the the Mistake that most people make is they don't know how to fit the trigger or the release to their hand. So you'll see people, most people activate that uh index finger release with the end of their finger, with the very tip of their finger. And I was just working with a guy last weekend out at out at the range. Um, one of my friends, it's a friend of his from church. So they're in a different ward. We all met out at the range and Spent a few minutes with him and literally within a few minutes, you know, he says, Hey, watch me shoot. Tell me what I can do to improve. And so I watched him shoot a half dozen heroes and, and I, immediately I had three or four things in mind that we could improve on. And the first thing was shortening that release length. So short, shortening the neck of the release. And he was shooting a Scott, which has three different lengths that you can get on there. So we shortened that thing down to the shortest one and took it from him reaching and extending to get to that trigger to being able to kind of wrap that finger around the trigger. And then that allows you to, to pull through that shock much more naturally in a more slow and controlled manner.
1: Well, and even, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, even if you're not reaching for the trigger, even if it's, um, if you're, is it true that if you're using the tip of your finger, there's the most, um, nerve endings and sensation in your tip of your fingers. And so you're, you can feel that. And the better that you can feel yeah. that you're more apt to punch it because you can feel what's no going on about, about it. right. And so yeah, by, it, by moving it, no. you're saying move it back into that, um, that kind of second into tier. that
0: second joint there yeah. in the second. Yeah. If you bend your index finger as far as you can bend it, that's going that center part of your finger. That's exactly where you want that trigger to be.
1: You and that feel just gives
0: it. you a yeah it, it gives you better control over the shot by having less control over the shot which makes which makes sense if you dive deeper in and you go to that next level which is activating that shot with your back muscles by literally when you pull back when my shots are really firing well i'm pulling to and through my anchor so when i say two and through it's not physically moving my anchor but it is my muscles my back muscles are still continuing to pull on that shot just kind of applying tension against that back wall of the of the bow and
1: then you're pushing happened, you're then, kind of pushing on the front end i mean this is just I, a I, little bit i'm no a ar- yeah, bit, okay, but
0: okay yeah most of it most of it um i want that front end of the shot to be really still and the more you're pushing on it the less still that sight picture becomes. Yeah. So yeah. you you just kind of figure out the ratios on your own because everybody's just a little bit different on yeah. that.
1: The best way that I've heard to help me mentally keep that in my head of what you're talking about of focusing kind of on what's going on with your trigger hand is um, John Dudley, which is just he, I mean, he's he's an incredible mm-hmm. re- resource for this. Um, oh yeah. Type of stuff. But he, the way, just the way that he explained it was like, if you're standing on a line to shoot, like you sometimes would, um, you want to just be focused on what's going on on the back half of your shot, you know? And from then on, it was, I like, it kind of inadvertently helped get rid of target panic because I wasn't thinking about the hit yeah. anymore. I, I was only allowing myself to think from, you know, basically from the center of my body back, which is just the back half of my shot. And it was like, yeah. oh man, like all of a sudden my pin was just doing what my pin should do because I was so focused on just pulling through that back with my back muscles. And it just for, for someone like me who has absolutely no training, absolutely no idea how to shoot a proper archery shot. That was just like a simple way of saying, I think what you're saying of like, just focusing on pulling through that back end or something. But
0: Yep. That's, and that's a great, it's a great way of putting it. I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of different ways of looking at back tension. There's a lot of different ways of applying tension to the back end of your shot too. And really it comes down to finding what works for you because there's a lot of different methods and the most popular method out there right now is man, it's like 180 degrees (laughs) off from what everybody was teaching a decade ago. So, um, and I mean, you look at the scores that are being shot right now. And part of that has to do with the equipment is just amazing. Um, you know, and really we're in, we're in a a great time as archers because every bow manufacturer is making a pretty dang good bow right now. And all of them are capable of, of world-class accuracy. If you put the time into tuning it and getting to know it and balancing it out properly for your technique, um, so that's awesome. But the technique of how people activate their, their back tension style releases is very different than it used to be. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the, the common, the common, uh, phrase was clicks are for chicks because, you know, if you're using a click on your back tension release, it was kind of a less than sort of, sort of approach to it. And I still don't personally like a click, but now a lot of the top end shooters are using that click to set up their shot. And so, you know, they'll, they'll pull, they'll, you know, they'll get to full draw and they'll get their their back elbow in position and then boom, it'll, it'll click. Shouldn't say boom, (laughs) but you know, it has a subtle click And then once that clicks, now they're really activating their shot and really working through that release. So it's, again, it's, there's a lot of different ways of skinning that cat and you just have to find what works for you. And I mean, for me, it's, you know, what works for me doesn't necessarily work for everybody else.
1: I've taught a
0: lot of people how to use my technique and it has worked for them, but you know, you have to kind of tailor it for everybody's you know physique and uh also for their their actual practice habits and you know the way they're anchoring and stuff as well
1: so are you do you hunt with your um, back tension or your hinge or what what are you hunting with i do i, I hunt with
0: actually it's a spike head release so there's a uh, personally i feel that it's the ultimate hunting release because there's no moving parts there's no noise on it whatsoever. So it's a back tension activated release that literally has no moving parts. And I've hunted I, every animal I've shot with a bow has been with that release. So so for the uh,
1: lay person like me, is that so that's a solid hook that you're just it's a solid hook. The shot is yeah. is literally going off as you pull through and rotate that hook
0: around and off the dealer. that's exactly it. okay. So I shoot a slick. I shoot a really slick uh, D-loop material, so it slides a little easier. Um, and so I I draw that thing back with my index finger and my thumb on the post as kind of a safety for it, so it doesn't over rotate. I draw it back. I hit full draw. Put the other f- you know the other fingers are on it because I have it set slow. It's kind of like your what you were saying earlier about having a trigger with with tension on it. My my release isn't set hairy, you know, it's not going to go off the moment I hit full draw, um, unless I make a, a pretty big mistake, but so yeah, I'll, I'll set that thing up slow and I draw back and I will literally my elbow, my back elbow just kind of keeps a slow rotation through the shot. So as I come into full draw, I pull into my anchor, that back elbow keeps kind of driving around. And once I feel that that's engaged my focus shifts 100% to the aiming part of the shot. And so as I'm aiming that shot, I mean, bottom line is, if your pin's on it, that arrow should be right behind where your pin was. Okay, so
1: when or why would you recommend or suggest that a bow hunter pick up a hinge or a back tension, or, you know,
0: when would you not? I'll tell you what, I had a raging case of target panic years ago, and that's why I shoot that release is because that's the release that I was using when I overcame target panic. So I, I just kept shooting that same release. So if you're struggling with some anticipation issues, so if you're at full draw, that pin is getting close to the shot, you know, close to the target, close to the target, bam, you just punch that trigger you need to change your technique up a little bit. And that's when I would suggest getting a back tension style release, whether it's a hinge or something that's tension activated. And most importantly, get yourself a lesson, talk to a, talk to a friend who knows how to activate that release properly, who can kind of help coach you through it. And that's what I would recommend Do yep. but, most importantly, do that in the off season, right after the end of archery season. That's when you need to start that. Yeah. July,
1: July is probably pushing it. If you got an August, July bonus. is
0: not a great time <laughs> to do
1: that. Yeah. Um, so a couple things came to mind while you're saying that one is nowadays, um, you know, I just think of like living here in Bunkerville and maybe there's some closet, uh, target archery hunter that I don't know about that lives here but uh, (laughs) could be probably not but nowadays I mean you can get online and probably get some online coaching just as easy and from someone who's you know maybe you know if you don't have anyone locally
0: very very true Yeah, very true so you mentioned John Dudley earlier he's a tremendous resource he does a lot of podcasts he does uh, live Instagram feeds and stuff like that so that's somebody who you can kind of and while you may not be getting one-on-one coaching with him, you can learn still from watching what he's uh, watching what he's doing yeah. and trying to apply that to yourself. One of the greatest tools, and I literally just had an Instagram post about this yesterday, um, is taking pictures of yourself. So have somebody take pictures of you at full draw, um, kind of working through your release. And again, a, another great technique is videoing yourself because then you can see what activated that trigger. Yeah, you can if, really hone in on it and see what it
1: is. If you really want to scare yourself, do do the video. Um, that, that reminds me of my base, <laughs> my, in my baseball days, um, you know, where we would just video ourselves, pitching and you think that you have a mechanic a certain way you think you look like roger clemens (laughs) yeah you're roger clemens in your (laughs) head but in in reality you're uh you know smalls on the sandlot and you can't even throw the ball
0: from you know center
1: field to the shortstop um
0: exactly yeah so that
1: it'll really if you can look at it um you know if if you don't know what you're looking at it's not going to help but um another thing that speaking of dudley um for some reason one thing that he'll do is just randomly, you know, if you if I I think if you sign on to his program or whatever, you can upload, you know, videos and photos of yourself even to him and then he kinda analyzes that for you. So I yeah I, I haven't utilized true, it true. and I don't know how that would
0: work or whatever. But And yeah. you know, I've I've helped a couple people, um just you know, people who've contacted me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And um I've helped a few people through it. And it's something that while well, it's helpful to be there one-on-one it's not required anymore i mean you can sit there and do a slow-mo video upload that to facebook messenger and send it to somebody and they will see that slow-mo video and go oh oh my gosh watch right here and that's where you hammer the crap out of that release (laughs) like you're mad at it you know and i mean that's that's such an effective tool for people. But like you said, if you don't know what you're looking at, you're just looking at somebody shooting a bow. You know, you're not seeing the finer points of it. But so, yeah, it's there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help out. I'm, I'm definitely one of them. I mean, I'm not a I'm not the best by any means. But again, like I said, I've I've helped a lot of people get started in the right direction and then also correct some of those bad habits that, yeah. uh, that a lot of people acquire because most of us are self-taught myself included i mean i didn't i didn't seek the help of a coach until i'd been shooting a bow for almost 20 years and i taught myself all kinds of bad crap in the, in the meantime <laughs> so it was uh it, that guy had his work cut out for him <laughs>
1: That's good. Um, let, I want to talk too about arrows and and specifically kind of broadheads, um, because that oh, sure that's right where I'm at in the process. Um, you know, like like you said, I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna I have my problems punching triggers, but I'm not gonna switch that up right now. But, um, I am trying to I'm looking right now actually at a fresh dozen, uh, set of arrows that I just got fletched up and and nice yep and so and then the other thing is we didn't draw any spectacular, um, elk tags, unfortunately this year. And so we usually try to go to like somewhere like Colorado or probably Idaho. And so that brings up fixed blade broadheads. And so I'm curious. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm curious. Um, you know, maybe the, maybe what I'd like to do is I'll just kind of explain the, the predicament that I'm in and then naturally we'll just kind of talk about broadheads, but, um, sure, yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: let's just talk about your situation. And yeah. Chances are it's going to apply to a lot of people listening.
1: Right. So first of all, let me just explain my setup um, because that's going to help understand what options we have. Um, eastern axis, 5-millimeter eastern axis. Um, not that it really matters too much, but I shoot uh, the max stealth, 3-inch uh, max stealth, well, 2.6, I think. Oh,
0: it definitely matters. Yeah, yeah it definitely
1: matters. Yeah, you're right. It actually
0: does. Are, are they flint? straight uh, offset helical they what, are uh, uh, your,
1: they're a straight there? straight fletch but offset you know probably as hard as i can get them maybe 3 degrees okay. or so
0: excellent excellent that's a that's a perfect starting point in my opinion yep
1: and then i have a you're they're three fletch obviously and 10 years ago that didn't seem to be a question but nowadays like geez, i've seen <laughs> Some everything from two-fletch. I'm waiting to see a one-fletch somehow. I'm waiting for Matt. (laughs) Matt Davis is going to come up with a one-fletch on his trad bow all the way to... uh, He just might. If anybody
0: does, it's going to be Matt. (laughs) And it's probably going to be like an eight-inch long feather that is so helical that it's wrapped all the way around the arrow, which may be the perfect... Recipe anyway. Yeah, no,
1: just one fletch, <laughs> and then pretty soon Matt's gonna be shooting bare yeah. shaft, you know, just, just gonna be shooting bare shaft <laughs> Um, and then I've seen all the way up to you know six fletch, and I'm just yep. like, man, it's getting crazy. Anyway, I'm just a really? normal, I'm just a simple guy, so three fletch, and then I, if I'm being honest, I'm not a big fan of the hit insert, and so I love the axis okay. arrow, but what I do to combat that is I run um, Easton makes and they, I know that they make now they they've come out with a um, kind of their version of an
0: outsert. I'm, I'm, and all, I've heard some great reviews on that too. That yeah. titanium outsert. Yep. I had supposed to be pretty solid. Right.
1: I have too. And I, I may look into that. Um, in the past, I've not been a, you know, I've, I've just never, I'm skeptical. I'm the guy that's like,
0: nah. I understand.
1: Right? And yeah, so, I understand completely. But, but maybe next year. Anyway, for now, what I've done is I run um, the RPS Deep 6 because I like having that little collar on the, yep. rather than the hit insert. Well, to add weight, then behind it, what I do is I take the the brass inserts that they give you, and not give you that you have to go find and are really, yeah. <laughs> really hard to find. You're... They
0: give you for a low, low price. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and I break those off to 50. The, the steel insert is 25. I break the brass off to
0: 50. You've got 75 yep. extra grades up front, essentially. Then Yep. And yeah. I
1: sink that brass right behind it. Um And so that's kind of the setup. So I have to shoot a deep six um, yep. this year, at least. Which
0: limits you immensely, but there are still some really good options out there though.
1: I have been back and forth. That being said, I'm back and forth between some non vented and some vented options. The other thing is because I, I put so much, and I should back up and say this fresh dozen, I actually haven't dropped the inserts in because I wanted to have this conversation. Um, but the reasoning behind the extra weight in the inserts is I wanted to run For years, I've been running a 125 head. Um, I wanted to run a 100-grain head because it helps with
0: options, especially with deep six. Oh, man. I was going to say, with the deep six, you're going to have a lot more options at 100 than you are at 125. Plus. That's That's a great strategy.
1: Plus, I was trying to cut down my wind resistance by just having an overall smaller head. So. Yep,
0: absolutely, I'm
1: absolutely. Basically, now I'm looking for everything, something that fits that criteria. That's, and then do I shoot a vented? Do I shoot a non-vented? Um, do I shoot a three okay, blade? So do you, I shoot a two blade? You
0: stumbled on to you stumbled on to something else there too. So that by having a hundred grain versus hundred twenty five grain, typically that's going to be a little bit shorter head and length, which in my experience means there's less run out on that product so that's going to spin better and getting those arrows to spin with the front of the putting, literally putting it on an arrow roller or spinner um and having that broadhead spinning perfectly true is vital yep. for fixed blade head accuracy and i i cannot stress that enough that makes sense so yeah and you know you're talking about two versus three it, again, and I'm going to go from my own personal experience, I'll I'll take three over two. And the reason is it gives a, a cut much less likely to seal up. A two-blade head can sometimes just leave, it leaves a slit in the animal. And that, that slit doesn't always let enough blood drop on the ground for my taste. So I personally prefer a three or a four um, I've had the best results with flight on a three. And then you asked about vented versus, um, you know, versus a, a flat or solid head. You're going to get less noise with a uh, with a, a a flat or you know solid head, where you might get a little bit more forgiveness with a vented head, but that's kind of debatable.
1: So. yeah and that's that's really because I have my heart set on a well, I don't let me let me back up. It's actually hard to find a non-vented three blade in a hundred grains. And the reason I was it was explained to me, there they have
0: a VPA and that might be your only option out there. May, VPA uh, that um, might be. It.
1: You know there there are some others. Um, keeping in mind that a lot of the stuff I'm looking at is not um, available at Walmart if that makes sense. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, and absolutely. so there's plenty of non-vented three blades, um, the you know whatever, um, that aren't super high quality steel or whatever. And so I'm I'm kind of looking at those, you know, yeah. s- something like a like an iron wheel, something like a. Um,
0: okay, know. so it's a two blade, but with the bleeder blades, and the bleeder blades can make a significant difference in that. Yeah. Um. It, and again, it's all in how that whole has the potential to close up. Well, and that's so just adding those little bleeders does make a
1: difference. Right. And, and, and as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, you know, and, and guys have mentioned this, but if you, with a two blade, let's say that you hit wherever you're trying to hit and then you're, you're passing by an artery, that's going to be the difference of that bull or buck or whatever yeah. bleed. Now, if that two blade goes in just at the right angle and rotates around that, It could, it could, in theory, the side of that arrow could scrape it and not cut it if the if the uh, blades are perfectly um, parallel to that that
0: artery or that vein or whatever. Um, That is absolutely true, and a a person much smarter than me could um, figure out the math on that, but you know, (laughs) of how of the probability, but yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, you want to put as much cutting area and surface through the animals you possibly can.
1: Yeah, so I'm that that I would prefer to shoot a 3 blade. Um I for some reason too, I've always um I've always like wanted to be the guy that lines up and I've never done it, but I want to be the guy that lines up my um 3 blade broadhead with my 3 blade
0: <laughs> with your fletchings. <laughs> yeah. And I, and again, there's, you know, yeah. I've read a lot of findings from a lot of people who I really trust their opinions and it doesn't matter. The fact is the most important thing, the most important thing is getting those broadheads aligned perfectly with the end of the arrow so that when you spin them, they spin yeah. true. not That's the most important thing. Not
1: because, you know, and I was just talking to my buddy. Um, he, he's my buddy now cause he's been on the podcast and he, he kind of said the same thing. Um, Tony Treach. Um, he kills oh, yeah. more stuff than, you know, the plague, but, oh, geez, and, I know. and he says, I don't even, I've never even worried about that. He's like my, the error isn't, you know, and someone's going to comment. I, I hope they do. Someone that knows more than us, but he's like the air it's not even in the same plane by the time it rotates around. And like, it's just like, and so that, that also kind of made sense to me. So you, you and you're kind of saying yeah. the same thing, like it's way more important to get that arrow to spin, uh, tune, um, than it is to worry about lining those blades up. Whether yep, it's a one, whether it's a two blade or a four blade or a three blade, right?
0: Exactly, okay. exactly. And see, and I I shoot a four fletch, so I mean for me, you know, I'd have to shoot a you know some kind of four blade head, but uh, to for that to really come into play. But
1: okay.
0: yeah, that's uh, definitely definitely matter. Uh, you know, it, it's all about just getting it straight, getting that thing straight so that it's spinning true and that's that's kind of the end all be all for me and then i ship mechanicals and i still if they don't spin right that gets balanced real quick it won't go in my quiver yeah
1: um and then where are you at with a fixed blade on the vented versus the non-vented relative to the noise what do you think on that
0: yeah there there definitely is a difference and the last fixed head i shot um was vented and man that thing sounded like a cheap fishing reel when you yeah. when you shot it it made a lot of noise like it like an absurd amount of noise and i <laughs> well i saw a buck duck out of the way and i mean it was there were a few things that factored into that but man i you just it, it, in my opinion it's all about eliminating variables. And that was the one variable that I found that I'm like, this is the loudest broadhead I've ever shot. I'm not going to shoot that thing anymore. That's not going out in the woods with me. You know, the opportunities are too hard to come by. To have something that's preventable be the reason that, that you don't find success. You know,
1: and that's that's a good point. In fact, I was listening to – I don't even know whose podcast it was. It doesn't matter, I guess. But um, other than just – Sounds like
0: you listen about as many of them as I do. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's just they're all
1: a blur. Um, Yeah. The only reason I care is I want to give them credit. But they were talking about how um, they were slow mowing some of their footage and watching these – maybe it was Brian i anyway they're slow mowing their footage and that deer was able to duck um I don't even think it was a mule deer it was something else you know something super switched on but it was the last quarter of the flight meaning you know the arrow took whatever Holy so cow. many a second to get there and it was it was all it took was a quarter second for that deer to start its drop and then drop a
0: foot in a quarter second, basically. And if you think about that, if you think about those, that, the reflex that's involved with that, let's just say an arrow's traveling 300 feet per second and it's a 30 yard shot. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is like no time in the air, no hang time, so to speak, but it's enough. Right, And sometimes it's too much. Yeah. And,
1: and then even, so, you know, 60 yards or whatever, 70 yards. Yep. Um, Once you start
0: adding to that, you're, you're just increasing it for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, and the other thing, you know, the, I, I think you were touching on like an, an arrow goes, what, th- what are we saying? 300 my, mine are you know, I've got so many yep. grains that I'm down to 285,
0: um, which is about where I want to be, I think. But Oh, that's perfect though. For fixed heads, that's in my opinion, you're, you're on the high side of where you want to be kind of in this. my, in my experience. So
1: yeah. so that being said, now it's going to piss me off cause I've already cited my tape in. Um, but if the broadhead that I want to shoot is a three blade that's non vented, that's like, like all things aside, that's the broadhead I want to shoot. Would you say just mm-hmm. add the extra 25 grains and slow that arrow down another five feet a second? How much would 25 it, grains slow an arrow down?
0: Um, I usually figure it's about two and a half grains equals one foot per second. That's kind of been my experience, two and a half to three, to three grains. So if you're 25, you're taking like eight feet per second off of that. Right. And truthfully, if you're shooting, if you're keeping your shots under 60 yards, you might not even need to change your sight tape.
1: Okay.
0: Um, it's when you start stretching out that you'll, you'll really start to see that matter more.
1: So maybe after your advice, I'm thinking what I might do then is order or get some my hands on some 125 grain uh, field tips.
0: Here's the, here's the best thing you can do, in my opinion. This is the easiest way to do this. Get the, um, if I'm not mistaken, oh, actually, but they wouldn't have the right threads. Dang it. Yep. If it wasn't the deep six, I would say just get some of the gold tip fact weights. That you can screw right into the back of the insert. Oh, yeah. Because then you can sit there and play around with it by just getting one of the long wrenches that goes down through the back end of the arrow. I see. And then you can literally sit there and say, okay, here's how they shoot at 50 grains of extra weight. Here's how they shoot at 20 grains or, you know, 40, 30, 20, or, you know, here it is with just the regular arrows.
1: So, but for now, maybe I'll just, I'll have to get the 125s and test that and just kind of see, um, and then, and then and, maybe and you just... can
0: do that with field points really easily. Yeah. You right. can, you can shoot a 125 grain field point and see what that does for you. Um, yeah. but again, you know, in that deep six, everything's just a little bit harder to find. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. So that
1: does matter. Well, I, I like that because like you're saying, it's, to me, it's, it's, it makes sense that like you're saying, it's more important to eliminate the variables that you can eliminate, you know, and so if that means I got to shoot a 125 because I found the right broadhead that's, you know, I want a three blade, I want non-vented, um, in a deep six or whatever, then. It's more important to just deal with, hey, I might have to re- get another sight tape, which will take me all of, you know, five minutes or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's
0: easy. And, that's and have a broadhead
1: that's not hissing through the air and, um, and is yep.
0: going to open up a wound channel. I, I like that. Man, I'm, glad yeah. I, I'm glad I talked well, to you. And, and just to validate your choice there, um, my my good friend, Tim Lang, who's my partner and Not Fit to Hunt, um, he has shot the uh, Gold Tip Kinetic Chaos, which is their version It's, I mean, as far as specs, it's basically the same thing as your five millimeter axis. Um, And he has shot that, uh, that deep six insert in, in the end of it for the exact same reasons. And let me tell you, it has performed beautifully. It's plenty strong and it's, it's a really, really good solid choice for that. So you'll, you'll like that. You'll like that setup a lot.
1: So you're guaranteeing, what are we saying, like a 190 probably? Nothing. I'm guaranteeing nothing.
0: <laughs> shoot. I That's what I, I'm guaranteeing. I thought I had you there I for a second. I, dude, I can't guarantee myself to shoot a 190-inch buck, mostly because I get distracted by 170-inch bucks and go chase them. So. Dude,
1: drop those 170s all day. Those are those are totally worth it. Yeah,
0: Man, I – In my opinion, you've got to be crazy to pass a 170-inch buck. And I've done it several times. And trust me, I can remember every single one of them because they haunt me in my dreams to this day. You know, and it's... I mean, granted, you can't kill a 200-inch if you've already shot 150 or 170. Not legally. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Great point. Um, But yeah... It's it's just so hard to pass a good solid buck like that, and it's yeah. uh, maybe one day I'll get there. I don't know. I well, hope so. And
1: that brings up kind of the last point on this. I want to talk about, and then we'll I'll wrap up and get out of here, uh, out of your Saturday. But um, oh no problem. When you are, let's say you're looking at a 190 or a 200 or 210 inch buck, what are you mentally telling yourself to keep yourself calm through the shot, specifically with archery? I've
0: done it before. I've done it before. I have made this shot before, and I'm about to make it again. That's what I tell myself. And the reason I tell myself that is because I'm not lying. And I'm not saying I've made that shot on another two hundred inch buck because huh, well, that'd just be lying because mm-hmm. my best buck is right at the one ninety rank want right at one ninety mark, but Um, and don't get me wrong, not complaining. Love that buck. I see it every day in my, my front room and it brings back those memories and and it's great. But literally I shoot a lot of arrows throughout the year. And let me give you an example. Yesterday, Tim and I, um, did our, I don't know if it's like our 12th or 13th annual archery demonstration at at a couple of Boy Scout camps that our church runs here. And so it's for the 11-year-old scouts, and each time we're at full draw, we have got groups of 50 to 100 people watching us shoot these shots. So that is pressure because these kids are sitting there. and This is a pass-fail test, every single shot is, because we set up balloons down there. And when you're at a hundred yards and you're trying to make that nine inch balloon go, boom, they aren't all that impressed by, man, I missed that balloon by a half an inch. Mm. They don't care. It didn't go pop. (laughs) So literally it's a, it's a nice way of introducing pressure into your shot. Um, you can do that by shooting tournaments. You can do it by shooting If you're just shooting with your friends in the backyard, maybe putting a, maybe putting a Pepsi on the results, you know, (laughs) Hey, closest to the center on this shot buys a Pepsi for the other guy on the way home, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you just got to find something that makes it matter just a little bit more.
1: You know, it's such such a good point. Yeah. Keep,
0: keep going. Finish that. Oh yeah. But because when you're in that pressure packed situation, that is what you want to look back on. You don't want to sit there and look at it and go, oh my gosh, I hope I don't screw this up. What you've got to look at is past experiences that have taught you that you can and you will make this shot. And I mean, some of it sounds like Tony Robbins, but you know, Hey, it's, it's a mind over matter thing at that point. Yep. So if you don't have those good experiences to fall back on, you better start developing them yep. and start now.
1: You know, I, again, with my baseball background, um, as you were saying that, I was like, man, that's, that's so right. And it's exactly how I learned. Um, so when I was pitching, um, it's, it's very common for pitchers to be able, you know, especially high school and college level to be able to throw, um, a fastball on the, on the outside corner, low and outside, right? Low and outside. Yeah. Well what can separate basically
0: an unhittable pitch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, un- until it's not, you know, and, and at the college yeah. level, uh, at the college level, if you're just throwing a ball in the same spot on the outside corner, um, eventually it's going to get hit. And so what separates the men from the boys, so to speak, is the guys who can go inside and outside. Well, there's a, there's kind of a mental block. If you can imagine when you're pitching um, and you're, you've got a, a, a baseball plate that's eight, 18 inches wide, and you've got a hitter, and his you're trying to throw a a pitch as hard as you can or close to it um, on the inside corner of a plate, right over the outside corner, and his knee might be four yep. or five inches from that. And and you yeah, and if well, you that's think a,
0: that's an automatic pace runner, if you
1: hit the yeah, and if you think of it that way, more often than not, you're going to hit him. And so it took me doing exactly what you were saying of being able to tune out that there's even a hitter in the box and just focus on the glove and say, I've thrown this pitch before to a glove and I've hit the glove. And that was, yeah. that was all it took to just eliminate that there's even a hitter there. And then I I could paint that inside corner just as well as I could paint the outside corner because I, I had mentally convinced myself that I've, I've thrown this pitch before.
0: It's the same. Because you've done it before. It's the exactly. same pitch and it, I've done it before. But without having... Yeah. But without having that experience and that, that history of doing it, you don't, you're just lying to yourself. You're hoping for good results. And archery, in my opinion, isn't about hoping to hit the animal. It's expecting to knock the center out of the dot that you're aiming at. You know, that's something that only comes with a lot of practice
1: how how often do you uh shoot your bow i mean I, I that that might be a loaded question
0: for you because you know what and honestly i don't shoot as much as i used to and and truthfully i'm not shooting as well as i used to either and so there's a there's a, a pretty tangible line that you can draw from point a to point b there but you know my shot is starting to come back to me right now and you know after coaching lacrosse for the last 6 months i mean there just hasn't been a lot of time available. You know, you've got practices two to three nights a week and games on Saturdays. and So, you know, there's just not as much free time as you would like to have. But I do feel it's important to shoot your bow as often as you possibly can. And quite often for me, when I get to this time of year, if I if at the end of the day, I just don't have time to make it all the way out to the range, I've got a target in my basement and I'll go down there. And if I shoot and my focus will be on five to 10 perfectly executed shots, yep. that's what I'm looking for. And if I get those five to 10 perfectly executed shots, go upstairs and go to bed. Yep. But, if but you, not, but you, then you, I've got some stuff to work.
1: You've on. put the years in to get to that point, you know, guys that are just starting out, um, you know, it, it's, it's because, yeah. it's because you've it's, built that foundation of, you know, of years and years it, and, it hours and hours. It absolutely is, yeah.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. It's awesome, man. This a is a lot of time in to get into that. Yep. This has been so valuable. I'm, I'm, man, I learned how to stock mule deer and scout mule deer, not stock, <laughs> but, but screw up uh, a mule deer stock <laughs> in
0: ways, in hey, ways that I didn't I even know existed. Maybe- Maybe one of the <laughs> experts on that, <laughs> yeah.
1: but no uh, man, balancing, uh, balancing scouting and your family and, and other things in life. And then most, most importantly for me today was um, just getting some reassurance on my arrow setup, and I'm going to go, uh, me- I'm actually heading to the range later tonight. And so that's, I'm, I'm super grateful that uh, you're able to step on, but l- let me... Um, well, text me and let me know how that works out
0: for you, too. Okay. Because I'm, I'm always interested to hear other people's experience on it and how, yeah. you know, kind of your feedback on that setup.
1: No, and I, I don't know why I didn't just go to that, like, yeah, duh, just shoot the 125s, Um, you know, if your sight tape moves, it
0: moves. But anyway... Um, yeah, that's not a problem at all. I mean, you can, like say do you have archer's advantage or tapes or yeah, whatever yeah, any yeah, of those yeah, programs yeah. so you can spit out a new site tape in right. 10 minutes
1: yeah so. i've got i use the tape so
0: um
1: okay okay fire around here uh and i already know the answer to this uh, elk mule deer or antelope
0: <laughs> wow that's a tough one <laughs> dustin you're really going to challenge me here so but the thing that might be surprising to people is what my number two is number one is obviously mule deer for me because anybody who thinks any differently is just wrong and if they'd like to discuss. The different ways they're wrong, feel free to put them in touch with me. I'd love to educate them on that and help them understand why mule deer are so awesome. Nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I love hunting antelope. I mean, it is all-day action. You're, there's a lot of action. I, I love hunting antelope. That's a lot of fun for me. And elk were put on this earth to taste great and irritate me. Those were the two reasons elk were put on this earth. So, mechanical. A lot of frustration. <laughs> Me- mechanical or fixed blade.
1: Mechanical. Yeah, we kind of touched on that earlier. Yep. Um, yep. What's your big dream- holes?
0: Yep. What's your dream hunt? Henry Mountain, uh, Henry Mountain Mule Deer in Utah. Maybe a strip hunt, um, and maybe a trip up to like Alberta or Saskatchewan. There you go
1: if you're picking up a rifle what's your uh, backcountry rifle caliber
0: oh geez i've shot two i've shot two animals with rifles in my life one was a 32 winchester Gosh. which is like a 3030. yeah uh open sights lever action um and then this last year i borrowed a 280 remington and that worked real real well having said that just bought my wife and son a 6.5 creed so that's going to be my uh go-to caliber until proven otherwise nice.
1: uh what's your favorite state
0: oh to man hunt? colorado a, colorado for
1: now and if you but could i don't if you have could, enough
0: experience oh,
1: if you could only hunt one state would it be colorado
0: you know what? It would probably be Idaho as a resident because you can shoot more than one deer. So many um, tags up there. Yeah. There's just so many opportunities. Yeah, and that's the one downside to Colorado is the opportunities are not exactly multiplying for us here. They're getting harder to come by all the time. And That drives me absolutely crazy.
1: And then what's your favorite this is this is gonna be a big one for you. This is you carry a lot of clout here. What's your favorite backcountry food item?
0: <laughs> oh man.
1: It's your language,
0: it, right? It, it is. And and truth be told, I eat a lot of cliff bars.
1: Oh. And
0: now they've fallen out of favor and everybody goes, It has that exact response that you just did. Yeah. Oh There's only a couple flavors that are good, but but truthfully, I have now come up with what I feel is the ultimate backcountry snack, and it is the what my friend Craig Wakefield. We were out hunting one day, and he had run out of food, and I whipped a couple of these out. And he goes, "Oh my gosh, these are like adult Lunchables," <laughs> and it's it's made by a company called Hillshire, and they have salami, cheese, and like a toasted bagel bite. For them. And they are freaking amazing. I mean, they are amazing. I love them. Absolutely love them. It's a rare day now that I don't have one of those in my backpack. Um, So. And then, of course, anything by Little Debbie is. But some are better than others because some of the good ones are way too crumbly and they cannot be trusted in yeah. backpack.
1: Unacceptable. That's so, why, yeah. Um, yeah, I feel you have like, to choose them wisely. I feel like you're a perfect candidate to rent our llamas because that will change. <laughs> Probably. <yeah>. That <laughs> will change the way you look at backcountry food. Um, we won't be talking oh, about man. cliff bars and salami. We'll be talking about Dews <laughs> and you know, bratwurst. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you're talking. Now you're talking.
1: Okay, where can people find you? Um,
0: Instagram is that I'm, kind of the your sauce? Yep, Instagram and Facebook. Um, on there is as both uh, Big Chief Wackabuck on uh, Instagram, and also not fit to hunt, and on uh, Facebook at Henry Ferguson and uh, not fit to hunt. Right. Then we do have a website which. I have not been doing a terrific job of keeping that up, but uh, the goal is to get more blog style stuff on there to maybe have you know because I, I I've always felt that whatever problem you're experiencing, somebody else is probably going through the same thing. So you know, for example, we're just talking about your arrow setup. If I go through different arrow setups or you know release techniques and chances are somebody else is going through that exact same thing. And maybe I can clarify a little bit from my experience on it. Yep. What is that website? So, Sorry. That is not fit to
1: Okay. Perfect.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I have one last question. And but... the YouTube channel too. Oh, oh man, yeah. forgot about the YouTube channel. Yeah. And I've also not done a great job of updating that, but that's also not fit to hunt.
1: Yeah. I watched, uh, I watched something you guys did, but, um, Oh, cool. Okay. Um, one last question, but first I want to give you credit, um, give you credit first for just jumping on with me and wasting part of your Saturday. I appreciate that. Oh,
0: my pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure, Dustin.
1: Yeah. Give you credit for, um, you know, I made a note here, like you just keep it real on Instagram. Um, it's never, it's, it's never too serious with you, which I like, um, you know, serious. Serious is, serious, yeah, ser- serious is good. Yeah, serious <laughs> serious is good. I I think that's because we're I think we take it too serious sometimes um and so I appreciate when I see guys like you that just understand, you know, to keep it light and not take yourself too serious, but and then uh you know, like like I always like to do if I if I personally know about someone, um just give you credit for being um, first a family man and second um you know, a, a man of God and and you understand that that there is a God and that, uh, you know, there
0: absolutely. Yep.
1: So give you,
0: and I'd like to return that right back to you too, Dustin, uh-huh. you, you always make a great point of, do a great job of pointing that out. And it's, it's something that, you know, it, it does kind of take one to know one there in that respect. And it's, uh, there's not, there's not that many of them out there anymore. <laughs> so it's, it's important. It's important to, to me and, the way I live my life. I mean, you gotta have some, have it centered around something there. Yeah.
1: God's God's so, out there. And, uh, and he, he knows you and he loves you. So
0: um, I'm infinitely aware of that. I've had too many circumstances in my own life to, to be able to deny that. Yep. Okay. Last, so.
1: last question, Henry, why do you hunt the back country?
0: Oh man. It's because that's where joy lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where i that's where i go and everything just kind of makes sense um seems like the farther i get from the road the more life just kind of makes sense so and sometimes when you don't have a ton of time in a day that could be a quarter mile and that can make all the difference in your life just to be able to get away and just kind of recharge that battery
1: Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.